This week on Silicon Reel, we have Stephen Rappaport, founder of Pax Coffee. I want to stop you from running out of coffee that you love. Stopping you from running out of coffee is different from sending you a bunch every month. Customers hate subscriptions. You need to be passionately, emotionally bought into the problem you're solving in order to execute better than everyone else. And if you don't execute better than anyone else, why launch the business in the first place? The global coffee market is the second largest commodity market on the planet after crude oil. We're a highly commercial business and we're a very customer-centric business. Silicon Real presents Stephen Rappaport, Packed Coffee. Follow your heart, do the thing you're most passionate about. In London, technology is the Silicon Roundabout. Introducing a new talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. Silicon Real. Each week, interviewing entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, financial technology, accelerators, and incubators in an exciting three-person format. Learn about the people behind the innovation. Locally filmed, locally sourced. Silicon Reel. It's about the people. This is Silicon Reel, the weekly talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. My guest today is Stephen Rappaport, who is the founder of Packed Coffee, which delivers freshly roasted specialty coffee to customers across the UK. You have secured over two and a half million pounds in investment from the likes of Tavert Hinkris from TransferWise, who we had here about a year and a half ago, Ian Hogarth from Soundkick, and Robert Klein from Index Ventures. You now sell over 10 tons of coffee a month with revenue growth of 20% month on month. Right. You formerly uh, built and sold the apartment sharing site Crash Patter to Airbnb. Stephen, welcome to Silicon Reel. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. You know, you, That's quite an intro. You like that, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think I'm just going to spin off this. I'm going to pivot and I'm just going to be the intro guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I think I got it down. Everyone you know? needs a niche. Yeah, right? Maybe, <laughs> maybe I should specialize more. You just made me an amazing cup of coffee in our kitchen. Uh, we just shot a video. You can find it probably right on this channel. And you walked me through the coffee, the, the thought behind it, the people that pick it. And I mean, and you went and directly bought this from the people in Colombia. You didn't go through a middleman or a coyote, as you described. And in those three minutes, I feel your passion coming through about coffee, like in a big way. And uh, it didn't seem preachy. It felt like, uh, you know, I wanted, like teaching and involving me. And right away, I'm sure your investors feel this. They're like, that's the guy we want to be backing because, you know, I've had 80 people people here. And ultimately the passion for many reasons is, is what really makes the company. And I was wondering if you could comment on that and, you know, and how you feel about coffee and your company and, and how that maybe is a key ingredient of what you do. Sure. So, um, comment on uh, coffee and, and my passion for coffee specifically, or the importance of, of passion in entrepreneurship. Well, why don't we start with, both? yeah, why don't we start with coffee for you first? Because yeah, sure. you know, you're, you're, this is your fourth startup. Is that right? This is my fourth startup. Yeah. Okay. So um, you're, you're not, you're, you're familiar with this concept of space, but not coffee before. So how did this happen? Yeah, that's right. So I'm, my, um, as you said, this is my fourth business. Um, my, my, my previous company, Crashpadder, as you mentioned, was bought by Airbnb. So we launched Crashpadder um, 
a guy called Dan Hill and I, uh, in the same month that Airbnb launched, we weren't a clone, I stress that, because there were so many clones. And, yeah. um, depressingly, some of them got bigger than us, and then we were like, yeah, we're not even as big as the... Anyway. Right, um, as maybe some German clones got a little big. And, yeah, exactly, okay. and then thankfully died. Right. Um, but, yeah, we, um, I, I used couchsurfing a lot um, when I was younger, when I was traveling and I thought it was great. And I thought, well, yeah, but the experience needs to be premiumized. And, um, I thought couch surfing would be better for hosts and for guests if some money changed hands, cause there'd be a higher service level from the hosts, access to better places, uh, an expectation that the guest could have of the host. Um, and I just felt it made sense. And I saw this transaction. So I thought, well, what about a marketplace uh, where this transaction could take place? And then I, th- I thought, well, and we could earn a commission from that. And my whole kind of uh, north star with that business was I've spotted an inefficiency in a market that I'd like to essentially exploit for a margin. This transaction makes us about thirty dollars. Let's do more of these transactions. And that was that was the driving force behind Crashpadder. And um, when we were acquired, and like, I, I would rather be warts and all honest, there's too much success theatre in this industry. <laughs> I could say, oh, and of course, we you know, strategically grew to the largest in the market and then cleverly were acquired in the Olympic year. Like, the honest truth is they out-executed us at almost every turn. We launched in the same month, and we were probably... We had 1% their host base the day that they acquired us. Which is five, um, five years later. Uh, which was four, four years later, okay. yeah. So okay. um, I spent a lot of time feeling kind of bruised about that. Um, uh, like, how is it that this group of people with the same opportunities, I don't buy the access to funding and access to expertise argument for Silicon Valley. I don't buy that defeatist stuff that we can't build global businesses outside of the US. Good. I want to talk about that more I th- later. I think it's harder, but I think it can be done. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking, God, I mean, these guys, you know, I met Brian and I thought, he's my age. Like, I don't feel like he's cleverer than me. I feel like we're, we're, we're really similar. Like, how did this happen? Right. He's an Airbnb then, founder. Right? Exactly. Yeah, sorry. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. right. Okay. right. Um, and inspiring guy to work for yeah. during the earnout. Absolutely right. inspiring. What became blindingly obvious the first day we set foot in their office. Um, so the acquisition story was, um, you know, Dan and I, my co-founder, said, look, this is, a, this is clearly a winner-takes-all global massive network effect marketplace business. We are not going to win. There's, there's now not even a remote possibility. And, and we tried to zoom and pivot, and it kind of worked and kind of didn't. We said, no, we've got to, we've got to throw in the towel here. Um, we'd made a lot of promises to all of our hosts and... Um, the reason I think that we've, you know, tr- proactively tried to get the business acquired was not for financial gain, but rather we had made commitments to hosts. Like, we hadn't raised money. We weren't a funded company. We were bootstrapped entirely to the end. Um, and we sort of had a serious conversation and, and said, you know, all, all of those things that we've always hoped for, for our hosts and our guests, that the best way that we can realize all of those promises is by handing them over to like better parents. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, so you went to their offices, you so, saw the passion they had. Yeah. And it's, sorry, I'm, I've, I've completely avoided your question about passion. I met them and in a heartbeat, I was like, these guys 
have been fighting our brains with their hearts and their brains, and that's a battle that no one is ever going to win. Okay. Like, but Brian has a famous question he would ask people when they interviewed, and he would find, he would say, if you had a, a year to live and had terminal cancer, would you still work for Airbnb? Apparently, that's been revised now to ten. Oh, years. really? And so, yeah. And so he's that's like, a great question. Yeah, it's a great question. I actually I put out a video the other night because we're looking for someone, and I said, you know, do you bleed London real? You know, and so it's classic, as in like, you know, they are on a mission. They need everybody to be all in they need people to think this is the greatest thing in the world that they're doing mm. they're adding all this value and so i know they have a, a real bleeding passion for what yeah. they do and it became bl- immediately obvious that the reason that we've been out executed is because they were they were doing something that they loved and they were passionate about the purpose and bluntly i wasn't passionate about the purpose with crash batter okay. um during the earnout, i spent six months working there amazing experience incredible team dan my um my co-founder is there uh I believe head of product or product lead okay. uh, right wow. now. Wow. And that was in um, San Francisco you spent six that's months right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, sorry. No, um, between San Fran and, and London, the okay. London office. Okay. Um, so a painful lesson, but a great lesson for you to incredible learn. Incredible lesson. And my wife, during that time, I, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. There was never any question as to whether or not I would launch another business. Um, it's kind of all I know how to do. Um, I've tried working for other people once briefly and I was horrible at it. Um, and she, she gave me this incredible piece of advice, uh, probably the best bit of advice I've ever been given, and certainly the one I repeat most often, which is stop trying to think like a, a VC. Stop trying to think like an investor. She said, you'd be a horrible investor. Um, think like Stephen Rappaport. Pick the thing that, that, that absolutely drives you, that you're passionate about, that, that might never be a big business, but that you care so deeply about, and it's not going to feel like work. And go and do that. And then in six months, a year's time, let's see if there's a business in it. And I and I did. I mean, I, uh, that's, it's just, that's, that's what they don't teach that in school. That's a funny thing. I mean, I studied economics, and they they always talk about the profit and the loss and the marginal returns and the elasticity of the demand curve. But no one ever tells you about the passion that that you need to keep a business going or to ultimately keep the customer happy. It's dollars and cents when you're kind of in an economic dollars and sphere. cents, and what, what that ignores is execution. You know, when you, if you plan a business purely on paper and say, like, so um, while I was planning Pact, I looked at the Pact business model for dog food, and on paper it has a larger addressable market. Like, that's a better idea. Okay. Pact for dog food is a better idea. <laughs> um, I wouldn't execute that business well because I don't care about it. Right. Like, me running Pact for dog food is a, te- is a horrible idea. Right. The, the business model on paper angle uh, ignores the fact that you need to be passionately emotionally bought into the problem you're solving in order to execute better than everyone else and if you don't execute better than anyone else why launch the business in the first place like right i i uh, that's that's personal i really don't see the point or the appeal in being number two and so is this something that uh, entrepreneurs and VCs, well, they will be fighting until the end of days because a VC ultimately wants that super scalable, you know, uh, 10,000, 100,000 X win mm. and the entrepreneur needs no. the passion. And so is it something that will always be? No, absolutely no. not because, okay. they're, because they're not mutually exclusive. What I'm saying is that they're the same. Um, a VC that backs, uh, um, mm, what am I trying to say? Uh, no, I think increasingly VCs will look at, look for, uh, passion and conviction from a founder uh, as much as if not more than they look at the, the addressable market. So if you've got someone trying to disrupt a billion pound market 
uh, with passion and heart. Uh, is that more appealing to an investor than someone who's trying to attack a two billion pound addressable market with just their mind? I'd argue it should be. I don't know. I'm not an investor. Right. No, that's a good point. Okay. I want to talk all about PACT, but I just want to just talk about something really quick. I listened to the how to start a startup lectures that were at Stanford and there was like a bunch of different people. And one of them was the Airbnb guy and, and Brian, I think it was. Brian, yeah. And he spoke about it and he spoke at one point, you know, they had a big competitor with a rockets clone in Germany. Wimby. Yeah. That's uh, right. Yeah. And, and he was like, we don't know what we're going to do because they built it so fast and scaled in Europe to where it was like almost they had to buy them and they had to make a call. And I think he said, are, do these people, are they passionate about it? Are they in it just for the economics? And ultimately they, they believed the latter. Mm. And I think they did beat them ultimately at their game. But there's, I mean, Rocket's business strategy is to copy things and then see if they, if they float, I might take some flack for that, but I'm just saying it. Um, is that, that doesn't work. Rocket just IPO'd and it was enormously successful. That absolutely yeah. works. Right. And what I'm saying is that um, founders that aren't led by passion don't work. If you right. meet the Rocket guys, what you'll find is that they are so passionate about out-executing other people that they're doing exactly what I'm doing. They're leading their business with passion. Okay. Their passion isn't for that, I guess, what, what I believe is the magical part of, of entrepreneurship, which is spotting a problem that's previously been hasn't been solved and solving it with creativity and data and focus uh, and customer empathy and all of these wonderful, beautiful things. Uh, their passion isn't that. Their passion is executing the hell out of a business. And I've nothing but respect for them right. because they're single-minded on what they're trying to achieve and they're achieving it. I think that's amazing. Yeah, no, that's a great way of framing I, it. And I think I'll get more flack for saying that than you'll get for suggesting <laughs> they clone people. Well, that's good. Um, we're, we're talking real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you've described your company as a VC-backed tech startup. And yet, as someone that doesn't know even where the Silicon Roundabout might walk around and say, okay, aren't you guys a, a coffee distributor? Mm. So what makes a company a technology business these days? Some people say every company is a technology company. And if they're not, they're going to be gone. Mm. And then some people don't believe that. Where is the, where, where does it, where does it land? I think that's a really good question. And I think the distinction between sort of uh, online and offline businesses uh, became very blurred about a decade ago. And it, it kind of stopped being a useful question. Are you a tech company or not? Um, I suppose, uh, I mean, if you're going to tr- try and define it, I suppose a technology company is one whose biggest engine for growth or driver of growth is heavily dependent on new technology, I suppose is a good, good definition. In, in the case of Pact, yeah, in, in many respects, we're a very, very old school business. You know, we take this product, which was first consumed by humans, like picked and dried and roasted and mixed with hot water, um, like maybe 600 years ago. And, and actually, fundamentally, not a huge amount has changed in that process since then. Even the countries, I mean, Ethiopia being the birthplace of coffee, we, right. we sell Ethiopian coffee that's, that's picked and dried and roasted. Yes, that's very old school, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll trade with a farmer on his farm somewhere that doesn't have Wi-Fi access, and then we'll put those beans on a lorry, and the lorry finds a boat. All of this is, is very old. Um, that said, the flip side of that, the consumer experience, is we're enabling people who didn't necessarily have the knowledge or the confidence or the geographical access to coffee of this standard to try it for the first time. Uh, we couldn't do that without social networks. Uh, I mean, bluntly, a web interface and a, you know, an iPhone app and all of these things that customers are used to interacting with. We couldn't help someone who's used to drinking instant coffee or, or low-grade coffee find a coffee from our range that they're going to really enjoy because 
coffees that we sell are quite nuanced. They don't all taste the same, which I think a lot of coffee drinkers are used to. We couldn't do that without a recommendation algorithm. Um, our algorithm is, is highly complex um, and an incredibly powerful piece of tech. Um, and, you know, when we, we don't just want to introduce people to the best cup of coffee they've ever made. We then want to stop them from running out. Now, I, I, you know, I want to stop you from running out of coffee that you love. Uh, there's two really complex challenges in there that can't be solved without a deep understanding and expertise in consumer technology. One is I need to find out what coffee you love, and I need to find out what coffee the other 100,000 people that we've sold coffee to in the last year in the UK love quickly. Um, so we have a guy called Will. He's our head of coffee. He can do that. What a great title. He, yeah. He, he doesn't scale. So, so we needed to build a piece of tech that, that delivered that value or as close to it as possible. We take 17 data points in the flavor of a cup of coffee. We find out all of the things that you uh, just inherently know about your own coffee habit, what hardware you use, whether you take milk, whether you take sugar when you drink it. And we pick a coffee that you're going to like. And then as you click like or dislike, they get better. Until the point where I, I would guarantee 99% of people that come to Pact buy bag four, it is hands down the best bag of coffee they have ever made, like drunk in their life. That's really hard. You can't do that without tech. Number two, stopping you from running out is difficult. I think a lot of people look at Pact, and because of the um, explosion in subscription businesses recently, they make a few assumptions about us. They assume that if you join Pact, you'll get a bag of coffee when we choose to send it, which will either be every fortnight or every month. Uh, and I'd say there's probably 20 or 30 businesses that operate that model uh, around the world. In fact, yes, yesterday... That's it? 20 or 30? Uh, well, sorry, that, that I'm aware of. That okay. There'll be hundreds. In I'm, coffee, you mean? Yes, okay, exactly. Right, okay, right. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, St Starbucks yesterday announced that they were launching one of those. Okay. And, um, so if you're that, listening to us, he got he a big grin on his face there. <laughs> if you're on iTunes. Um, I have an enormous amount of respect for Starbucks, and that's well all said. I'm going to say well on the said. matter. Very um, well said. The, the, stopping you from running out of coffee is different from sending you a bunch every month. Um, stopping you from running out, and again, there's 100,000 people who we have tried to stop running out, you know, save them from running out of coffee. That's really hard. We need to know, uh, first of all, your, your standard cadence, like how often do you actually need a bag? We need to send it that often. And then we need to give you all of the tools that make it possible for you to, with as few clicks and taps as possible, uh, fine-tune that delivery because you think about it from a customer's point of view we always want you to have one bag of coffee in your cupboard that you're utterly enamored with um we'll sell you that bag like we'll send it to you and then we need to figure out how quickly you're drinking it like imagine if you were to have a dinner party and suddenly you use you use half a bag and we didn't do anything about that you'd run out of coffee just before every single bag we send you'd run out of coffee maybe twice a month we would cause you a great deal of pain in that scenario. Like, you can't solve the problem of stopping people from running out without really smart tech. Okay, so then they have to let you know when they need more coffee or you have to constantly be asking them or learn their patterns? Is that what your tech does? Um, I think the, the purpose of our technology is to remove as much of the friction as possible from us knowing how much coffee is in their cupboard. Um, so no, they don't have to tell us every time they, they need another bag. That would be there would be a lot of friction in that process. And we don't check with them every week. There'd be a lot of friction there as well. And I think we'd, we'd piss off all of our customers. Mm. We'd never get them back. Um, so, no, the, the ambition of, of our technology, our consumer 
tech is to say, well, here's a customer's coffee habit. This is their coffee life. Um, let's try and imagine what that's going to look like over the next five years. Uh, all of the interactions they're going to have to have with us. How do we remove as many, like net remove as many clicks and taps from their life with us as possible? but still enable them to have between, let's say, 50 and 250 grams of coffee in the cupboard. Okay. Um, to be clear, um, I think we're solving that problem better than anyone else on the planet right now um, for coffee or any other product. Okay, and that's um, really a human issue of consumption in this. It's not it's, a coffee issue. Well, uh, I guess it's both. It's, I think it's a human issue that, that's sort of highly amplified with coffee because coffee as a product, if you run out of it, it's, it's more painful than if you run out of like celery or <laughs> milk. Um, just to, I mean, to finish that last point, we're doing it better than anyone else in the world. And I would say we're 5%, maybe, maybe less of the way to solving the problem fully. Um, you know, we were in a team of 30 um, or team of 32 uh, we've got 10 guys in our in our product and development team. We're okay. going to be doubling that over the next year because this is a really hard problem to solve. And that, that, that's what helps me to feel confident uh, in the face of sort of competition from the big guys like Starbucks or ultimately Tesco's and Walmart. I mean, that they are our competition. Okay. Because you want to be clear here that you're not just the guys that send you the same order every two weeks and it's a subscription model. You are really trying to understand your consumer, yeah. take the frictions out, and just have it always there. Absolutely. As a customer of Pact, you never run out of coffee that you love and you never have a cupboard that's full of coffee. And that's that's it. You never run out of coffee right. you love. Great business models are simple, but very difficult. And really yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah. We, we had the Halo guys in here uh, like a year ago, and oh, I was cool. like, your app is really simple. And the guy was just fuming, and he was just <laughs> like, yeah, we got 30 developers making it that simple. Yeah. But, you know, and same with the Uber. It's like it's such a simple concept. Your concept is nice and simple. It's actually quite complex, but you're, 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 you just said it in six words. You know, we want to do this, 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 and this. Yeah. Now, and then the, 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 the solution is is now the complex part. You mentioned the subscription model. Okay. It's something that, that every tech startup dreams of. It's got the revenue models that the VCs love, you know, and, and like you said, everyone's moving toward it. Everyone's trying to get into it. What are the pros and cons of the subscription model? Do people take it for granted? Do tech people do it and don't even think about the customer? I think that's that's a superb question. Um, because I think fundamentally customers hate subscriptions. Um, I think subscriptions are, are most appealing to naive founders and uh, naive or, or lazy investors. Um, I, I don't know if you've read um, Hooked, the, the yeah. book about habit, habit-forming yeah. products. I'm reading it right now. Audible, I, yeah. I, it's so Variable good. reward. <laughs> yeah, well, I think what well, that book to me uh, makes two points. And I mean, look, they're not new points. Um, Nero's putting them better than anyone has put them before, which is um, forming a habit with a customer takes a tremendous amount of work and e- empathy on the one hand and is enormously valuable commercially on the other hand. Um, I think, in, in my opinion, um, most subscription businesses look at the value of a habit that you can form in a customer's life and say, mm, do you know, I'd love all of that value, but that looks really hard. Let's just let's build the habit and then see who wants it. And it's kind of like, I mean, if, if um, so the, the two case studies that I think are used most in talking about habit-forming products are Facebook and the iPhone. Um, it's kind of a, I don't know if you think this is a good analogy or not. I think the, the average, uh, I think a, a heavy Facebook user checks Facebook 30 to 50 times a day. Um, so if Facebook had launched with a product which was 
sent you a push notification 30 to 50 times a day saying, well, people are going to want this one day once we've done the hard work of, of building a habit for them. So let's just do the habit now and then we'll have all of the value. Like that would just die. And in my opinion, most of the rigid uh, subscription businesses will also die because they're not fundamentally solving a problem. Uh, right. They're saying we want recurrent revenues because like helping to, I no, taking the time to understand the customer's needs and then perfectly building something that suits all of our customers' needs, even though their needs are different. That's just too hard. Let's just do the, the recurrent revenue thing and see who's buying. And then typically what you'll see in those businesses is those, those companies will pay to acquire you. Um, then they'll pay to retain you, maybe with your fifth free or your tenth free or both. Then they'll pay to get you to tell your friends. And then you'll churn and they'll pay to get you back. Like they pay for retention, they pay for acquisition, they pay for loyalty. Um, and that's why, in my opinion, those businesses will, will die. Okay. Um, but your model is subscription-based? Your model is need-based? I don't like the word subscription okay. for Pact. Um, what we do is uh, there's certainly a recurrent uh, element to it. We take the time to understand how frequently you need a shipment and we send it to you that frequently because we think that solves your problem. If that doesn't solve your problem, we change that. So let's say you, you join Pact and um, you find, you know, we, we find when you sign up that uh, you answer a couple of questions. Uh, this is just full rolling out at the moment actually as a piece of UX so if anyone does this and it's not what they see then <laughs> ping me an email and I'll, I'll apologise it's being rolled out right now uh, you, you'll answer a couple of questions and we'll say okay Brian looks like you need a bag of coffee every 17 days and that's how often we'll send it then as you go through your life with Pact uh, we've got a, uh, an iPhone app, just a panic button. It's a single function app. You hit that button before 1pm, we get you coffee anywhere in the UK by 9am. No extra cost. Um, so you hit the panic button on day 11, and then you hit it 11 days later. We'll say, actually, Brian, do you know what? We got it wrong. You don't need a bag every 17 days. It's every 11. Um, so... It's a subscription insofar as when we find how often you need a bag, then we'll send it to you that frequently, but we'll never tie you in. You can always close your account, suspend your account, skip an order, change the date of an order. Uh, we'll email you two days before any bag that we ship you, like any coffee that we send, saying, just a quick reminder, we are sending this because we think you need one right now, but if you still have a bag in the cupboard, click here to change the date, delay it. Uh, so... Subscriptions love hate for me. It, it, it communicates 70% of what we do and it fails to communicate the really valuable or really complex thing okay. that we do. So the cus I mean, the customer is such a focus of the startup industry, the tech industry, but then also everyone's trying to get to the finish line and get to the headlines and get to the big raise. And so it's this fine line. I guess it always will be a fine line between, but you really have to constantly listen and iterate to your customers and always constantly deliver value. Otherwise, you're going to be one of these companies that pays to get them back and pays for this and pays for the loyalty. And uh, how many businesses actually are able to pull it off, do you think, in your opinion? Uh, I, don't, uh, I don't feel qualified to answer okay, that question. You. I have let, no idea. Let me ask you about something you said uh, in an email to me, and you said it earlier. And this is this whole concept that London competes with Silicon Valley. And you said it earlier, and this whole feeling that I can't do it in London because we don't have the VC, we don't have the knowledge, we don't have that. You hate that comparison. I want to talk about that. Sure. Why? And you've also had experience with you know Airbnb. I mean, who's, who's else is at the top of that game? And your own interest in that. Why shouldn't Londoners feel that way? Um, 
because it's defeatist um if if you feel that um you're in an ecosystem where you can't achieve your ambition then what on earth are you doing trying to achieve your ambition there I and mean, if you honestly genuinely feel that there's something that you're trying to launch which isn't going to take hold here or isn't going to succeed because of the other people that live in this city with you or the people that you're going to try and offer this product to then go, go and launch it somewhere else um, I think there are a small number of examples uh, of the I guess they're now being termed unicorns but there's there's a, a number of billion pound businesses that have been built in Europe uh, which sure they could have been built in New York or Silicon Valley or Israel or one of the other like um, hotbeds for startups at the moment. I think the I'm rambling a little. The reason I don't like it is that it's defeatist and that it it, it gives people an excuse to fail other than their own hard work, dedication, focus, resilience. Um, it's so easy and it's so lazy to say, well, of course, had I been born in Silicon Valley, life would have been different. And like, I bet the people that fall back on that excuse would have failed in Silicon Valley as well. Right. And if you talk to someone like Tavet, who's one of our investors and the founder of TransferWise and um, helped build Skype and has now built a billion pound company here, he would have succeeded in Silicon Valley and he succeeded in London. Um, yeah, we don't have the same access to finance and we don't have the same access to expertise and if that's going to stop you from succeeding then don't you know then don't try to succeed um fantastic point Uh, very well said very good let me ask you about coffee and tech startups and vcs because they they kind of seem to all run in the same circle if you look to america you know blue bottle comes out you know Mm. and you got all these and people are like why do these people run together is it a passion thing or is it a a scale thing and and i'm gonna ask you the same thing i mean you have some very successful people in this in your last rounds of finance uh, financing you probably have more in the future why is coffee and these people drawn together or is is and what are your thoughts on blue bottle um okay so well so there's three people there you've said that uh startups vcs and coffee run in the same circles i mean startups and vcs do because that's okay. a mutually parasitic relationship <laughs> yeah, okay, like cool. we desperately right. need each other <laughs> throw coffee um, in there throw coffee in there um i think coffee's at a really interesting uh inflection point at the moment it's uh it's an ancient product it's been around for you know um, half a millennium um, and it's it's ultimately it's a massive industry which requires upgrading um, people want to drink better coffee the, the current channels don't give them access to that better coffee there's a bunch of new technologies that helps people have a much better coffee experience so um, uh, do I think I, I, I think coffee's time probably has come uh, or at least <laughs> when I say that, you know, coffee's time came when Starbucks launched and it was completely revolutionized globally. Um, it, it moves in waves. We're in, in the middle of a wave. Uh, in the UK at the moment, um, the, there's a number of forces w- w- which I believe make coffee a really interesting, really attractive uh, 
industry to, to be trying to disrupt. Uh, one is that we have this unusual dependence on instant coffee in the UK. I had no idea. Um, yeah, it's like 70% of coffee drunk at home in the UK is instant coffee granules. Uh, so I think compared Compar- to, to f- yeah. France, about 3%. US, I think it's much less than 3%. And if that uh, doesn't say it all about Britain, what does? Yeah, so what on earth <laughs> is happening here? So we've got our tea heritage, uh, and that's probably a contributing factor. The major reason for that is um, the uh, so instant coffee was, was developed uh, during the First World War so that people could take it into trenches, um, as I said. A while ago, you know, it's like everything that came out of the trenches of the First World War. It's, it's absolutely horrid. Right. Um, right. Uh, and then it was in, in ration packs after the Second World War, and it just found its way into our kitchens and into our habits. Um, and that's a massive, uh, a massive market which is falling off a cliff because we've gone through a food and flavor renaissance, and people won't tolerate that kind of stuff anymore. Um, and the disparity between the coffee that people are drinking at home and coffee that people are drinking out of their home in not Starbucks, but third-wave coffee shops. Um, Blue Bottle isn't over here, but um, um, I mean they would be a great example in the States. The disparity between home coffee and, and, and out coffee is just enormous, void. And I think there's, there's a huge opportunity. Okay. Um, I, th- I think that's why coffee is exciting in the UK right now. Um, people are also more conscious of the provenance of the things they're consuming and the impact that their consumption choices have on uh, the world economy and the world environment. And I think that those two things play, play into coffee's favor as well. Okay. Can you comment on Blue Bottle and the success they've had and what they're doing different than you or what um, we can learn from the Americans in that sense? Um, I, I mean, to be honest, I can't. I mean, they're, they're, they're on the other side of the Atlantic. I don't know the business particularly well. Okay. Um, I know a few of the people who've invested in them and they're, they're incredibly impressive people. Um, I've had a bag of blue bottle coffee called three africans uh and this is my only interaction i've had with with blue bottle um as a coffee roaster you, you always drink someone else's coffee uh, hoping that it's going to be good because you like drinking good coffee but slightly less good than your own <laughs> and i had this i had a sip of of three africans and i thought ah oh, shit that is really good <laughs> i think they're a terrific business a terrific roaster uh, i've only tried one of their coffees and i made it myself i, I was very impressed but I mean, other than that i can't really i can't really comment on their business okay are you inspired by any companies like zappos in the u.s or anything else that you see and you're like okay that that inspires me or that that looks good is there anything that comes up in, in mind or that you want to be this of this or are you just focusing on your own business I'm focusing on my own business. I can get I mean, that in, feeling about you. In the, in the, uh, the, the, there's this, this weird drive I find in tech uh, press to brand all new ideas as the X of Y. The um, Tinder of Uber. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Tinder of Uber, but on Facebook. It's like, I, no, like we're try, we're, I'm really, really clear-minded on the problem we're solving and the, and the people we're solving it for, and that, like, that's what we are with the business that, that stops you from running out of coffee that you love um we've been described as the zappos of coffee which is kind of appropriate but far less appropriate than we stop you running out of the coffee that you love and we're packed (laughs) um to answer your question before am i inspired by other founders i mean of course every day um i was inspired at airbnb with brian and joe and nate um i'm inspired by my team the guys surrounding me um, they're, they're the most humbling and extraordinary group of people I've ever, ever had the, the privilege of working with. 
Uh, I'm inspired by my investors. Like there's no, there's no one on our cap table who isn't on there by design. Um, and of course, you know, I read uh, the things that Travis at Uber has written and like about his focus and his ambition. I find that incredibly inspiring. Um, uh, Tony uh, um, uh, at Zappos about his just absolute unwillingness to compromise customer experience and customer joy through selling shoes. Yeah. I think that's incredible. Yeah. I think that's incredible. Um, and, and all of the, the cliched founders. Um, I'm inspired by each of them. What's your life now? I know you're scaling up. Uh, you're, you know, uh, you're probably raising money like a lot of people. You're at like 50, 70 employees? No, 30, we're 30. 32. 32, so 30 okay. 30 full time. Um, we're growing get- sort of 20% month on month. We're, we're in a really good place. Our revenues are sort of um, crept into the millions about six months ago and we're we're um we're growing twenty percent month on month. Okay. Uh, so what is the big challenges now? Completely different than a year ago, I'm guessing. For so you. we are fundraising. Uh, we're, we're fundraising at the moment. Series B. Um, when I say that, I mean we're, we're in the process of doing so. Um, I never know if you're meant to be open about that stuff or not, but um, th- that's a big challenge that takes my attention away operationally from the business, um, which. Uh, in turn means that I need to change some of the operations and the leadership structure inside the company to make sure that we can carry on making decisions that are as good as our decisions in the past. Those are really big challenges. Um, we are I mean, fighting against two challenges that I think are, have been there from day one and will, will be there for the foreseeable future, which is um, a huge amount of snobbery in the coffee industry. And I think there are some people... Uh, some fairly vocal people who are, uh, I mean, almost offended by the fact that we're trying to open specialty coffee to people who don't uh, spend their days, you know, uh, talking about um, altitude of growth and towar and bean varietal and process and moustache wax and all of that shit. Yeah, Um, (laughs) let's let's briefly talk coffee snobbery because, you know, we've all been there. We've all been at the barista and they're, you know, making us feel uncomfortable. I think the same thing Mm -hmm. happens in wine or happened a long time ago where there's just this information gap and people use it sometimes to their advantage or Mm. maybe the the sellers can do that. It's just, it's a lot of confusion, makes people feel weird. Yeah, what are you finding with coffee? That people don't want you educating the public or is it the specialty people want to stay the specialty people? Well, there's this, there's this weird thing. I mean, it's people, in my opinion, it's, it's founders of specialty coffee businesses. This is normally sort of single outlet or, or maybe two or three outlet coffee shops or specialist roasters. And they're confusing uh, what are important, uh, what's important knowledge for the business and what do customers care about. So I, I was dismissive then. I, I, I finished that list of varietal, terroir, um, you know, growing altitude, process type, and all that shit. I didn't mean all that shit. What I meant was there's no reason for me. I care deeply about the provenance and the quality of our coffees, and all of those things are critical components of the green coffee we buy. And then the process of roasting it is incredibly complex and really difficult, and the chemistry involved in coffee roasting is, is mind-boggling. Um, and I care about all of that stuff, and I get really excited by it, and half of my team do as well. What I don't do is confuse the fact that because I care about it, uh, my customers will as well. And I think it's really dangerous, uh, specialty coffee roasters behaving in a self-centered way and implying that their customers almost don't deserve access to these beautiful 
profound products if they don't care or talk about that stuff is bottlenecking the growth of specialty coffee globally. And the knock-on effect that's having on welfare at origin is heartbreaking. And so you've got these, um, for want of a better word, hipsters in their specialty coffee shop uh, lauding their granular knowledge about this beautiful product and it's valuable knowledge but they're lording it over people because in my opinion it makes them feel good about themselves to know something that other people don't that's going to stop my mum from buying coffee this good uh it's going to stop most people from buying coffee this good they're erecting emotional barriers to a product which ultimately is affordable and is beautiful and anyone can have a sip of that coffee i've just made you and go oh my god that is wonderful you know that's wonderful And if they want to talk to us about where it's come from or how many generations that farm has been been farming that land for and producing specialty coffee, then of course we will. Uh, We won't make the mistake of putting people off buying coffee of this standard um, by by forcing unnecessary information on them. Okay. Um, That's a very nuanced point. uh, I think the... I mean, to finish it, I think a lot of these behaviours that I talk about have been learned from the wine trade where, you know, the overlaps with, with specialty coffee and wine are, are enormous, you know um, grape varietal, bean varietal, very similar impact on flavour, that the terroir is critical the provenance, the uh, heritage of the people uh, who you know, grow the vines or grow the bushes all, all of this stuff matters and so coffee people have come in and said oh we, you know, we should behave like those guys and the, thing that they've, the point that they've missed the critical point that they've missed is that if you're drinking the best wine on the planet you've probably spent $10,000 for a case or £10,000 um, yeah you have absolutely every right to, to, like, to, to want to talk about every like if I'd just spent £1,000 on a bottle of wine I'd want to know like the winemakers inside leg measurement and everything else like the best coffee on the planet like the most moving profound flavor that you can get from a cup of coffee on the planet is six pounds 95 a bag and i know because we sell it and it's democratizing like you don't need to behave that way to sell coffee this good you can if you choose to my suggestion would be you should if if an individual customer asks you to and you absolutely shouldn't if they don't because and if not, it's a friction, really, at the end of the day. It's a point of friction. It'll stop the specialty market growing. It will maintain the commodity market, which is vast and cruel. Um, and uh, you're just not going to do your business any favors, your potential customers any favors, or your producers any favors. It's just a lose, lose, lose. Okay, good. But that's going to be like one clip that we're going to leave out there when people talk about coffee. Real briefly in the kitchen, you talked about how you buy direct from your people in Colombia and you don't use middlemen, a.k.a. coyotes, mm. to buy it and how that can really make a difference to find out if there is a child or someone in some type of slave labor that's actually picking the bean. And it's not something people think about about or want to think about when they drink their coffee. We see the fair trade things. We don't really know what that means. We see the pictures of Starbucks and we don't really know where the coffee comes. So why is that important to you? And how does that actually play out in the end of the day, as far as their coffee getting to us, them being paid for their coffee, all that stuff? Um, so it's the first thing I'd say is I'm, I'm slightly hesitant, very slightly hesitant to, um, to answer and the reason is um, I'm really cautious um, not to position Pact as an ethics first business um, 
I think we're a highly commercial business and we're a very customer-centric business with a good heart and our success will lead to great, you know, wonderful things happening at Origin. Um, so if I'm slightly hesitant, it's because actually I think if you position your company as an ethical company, you end up selling ethical products to people who were buying them in the first place and everyone else assumes that you're slightly low quality and slightly high price. <laughs> um, so uh, that, that's, that's my caveat. It's done. Um, why does that matter to me? So um, the coffee industry uh, or the coffee market, the global coffee market is the second largest commodity market on the planet after crude oil. Um, it employs hundreds of thousands. And before marijuana, probably. <laughs> I, I, I okay. can't possibly comment. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, uh, no, but like before cereals, like before food, okay. bigger yeah. than food, okay. <laughs> um, the, nice. um, it's a, a, a seasonal agricultural product uh, grown in developing economies, typically very poor countries like Ethiopia, uh, I mean, Tanzania, Kenya—they're they're, not—you know—they're not incredibly poor, but they're, they're developing economies. Uh, Central and South America. Uh, you've got hundreds of thousands of my unskilled migrant agricultural workers, um, who, when the season is in, in most cases it's once a year, uh, sort of flood through a farm and pick these cherries, and it's unskilled. Um, the sh- the sheer opportunity for human rights abuse in in what I've just described. Um, it, it is enormous and, and there is a lot of child labour used and slave labour and prison labour they're, they're the three big ones and then even when there's, there's sort of consenting adult labour used um, the conditions can be very poor uh, people's lives can be very unpleasant um, it's a commodity market driven uh, predominantly by demand in the west um, and the pricing is driven by um, demand and, and also sort of seasonal variation. So in, in tough years for these guys, they, they, these farmers will produce a, a huge amount of coffee and keep it in store and sell it throughout the year. And then I mean, like, in the months that precede the, the new season's crop coming in when they're very cash-strapped, uh, most, not most a lot will be selling the, the produce they have left for less than the cost of production. They'll be making a loss. Uh, and all, that, 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 um, those tight margins trickle down and it, and it impacts the way that, that their pickers are, are treated and paid. Okay. And I, th- I think that's an inevitable fact in, a, in a, ultimately what, it, what is free market economics. So there's various people who've tried to address that problem. Fair trade is the, it's the best example, in, in my opinion, and I'd rather not... Um, get too stuck on, on why this is the case but in my opinion that's the wrong way to try and solve that problem fundamentally because it separates uh, price and quality the way to solve that problem is to educate consumers as to why they should be consuming something better that's more expensive that results in a grower getting paid more that requires a grower to employ semi-skilled labor you know that these aren't doctors they're not graduates but they know how to spot and pick a ripe cherry and they're paid a lot more as a result um, so I think the major impact that PACT will have uh, on the world economy if we succeed in achieving our ambition um, is we'll upgrade people's coffee habits at home. Uh, I think we'll have a small but meaningful impact on 10 million people's breakfasts in the developed world. And as a result, I think we'll save thousands of lives at origin uh, where fair prices will be paid and fair prices will trickle down through semi-skilled labour. Um, okay. And f- fundamentally, that, that, 
that's what uh, that's what thrills me about the possibility of succeeding. Um, yeah, I am a capitalist. I am an entrepreneur. I, I do want this business to succeed commercially. Um, I do want to. I've got enormous respect for my investors' money, and they you know, they've been very honest about what they need from Pact, and and, I, and I've been very sincere in saying I'm going to try and give it to them. Um, but ultimately, the thing that that really keeps the engine turning is, is that knowledge that we can have a a positive impact at people's breakfast tables in the developed world and, and on people's lives in the developing. Okay. Well said. Uh, let me change gears a bit. Sure. You're, you're a new father. Um, <laughs> everyone knows or thinks that a tech startup is going to be a 24-7 job. We all know it does require so much time, so much passion. On the way on the elevator, on the way up, you were saying, you know, a, a boring day. That would be a, an amazing concept to me. <laughs> you know, in uh, speaking of people in traditional jobs and things like that, how do you balance being a father, um, getting your personal time, running a business, you know, dealing with a, a really yeah. young, a young baby. How do you juggle it all? And is it all part of the same puzzle? I mean, is it really necessary to have that downtime and that family time to get recharged, to be passionate about your business? Mm. Um, I'd love to, I would love to claim I'm doing a perfect job on that, on that front. Um, I've got an incredibly supportive wife, Emma. Uh, she's amazing. And, um, I, uh, I, I wouldn't claim that I'm getting the balance just right at the moment of being a new dad and being really proud of the job that I'm doing as a new dad and also being really proud of the job I'm doing as a founder. I think the, the two do make... Yeah, I mean, the two do almost, by definition, cause you to compromise the other. Um, yeah. It's a really hard balance to strike. Before Matilda was born, so she's three months old now. Oh, no, four. <laughs> She's so cute. I just she's like <laughs> heartbreaking every day. Um, I spoke to a, a few founders uh, who I knew to have young children, uh, and I asked them like, "How how do I do this? <laughs> like how how do I uh, continue to be an effective leader uh, at Pact and still be a good dad?" And everyone had some tips, and everyone had the shared experience of like you. It's really hard. You'll know which compromises to make. You'll know which compromises work for you. Um, and yeah, I, mean, I don't know if I don't know if I have the answer. I mean, the, the best advice I was given was um, Tim, who's the founder of Cedo, um, uh, said just be really clear-minded on the things that you're not going to do at work anymore. He was like, list all of the stuff you're doing at the moment. Pick the most trivial because you will fill some of your diary with trivial stuff that you don't need to be working on, and make sure that's the thing that slips. Don't do all of the same stuff to a slightly lower standard. Like, be really clear-minded on the stuff that you're going to still do. And I think that's, that's the best advice I got. It's certainly the only advice I'd probably give. That's good advice. That's good advice. I like that. Stephen, I always ask everyone that comes on the show a few questions here sure. uh, at the end. I'm going to ask you, if you could make a phone call to the 20-year-old Stephen and <laughs> g- give that young man a bit of advice, what would you tell him? Wow. Shit, I have no idea. Uh, what would I tell him? So I was in university at that time, and um, I don't want to be all kind of... Um, uh, this, this might be a slightly controversial thing, so I would probably advise him to drop out of university. Um, I did a business degree, which, as an undergraduate, is, is in my opinion, a, a fairly uh, pointless 
way to spend your time, particularly if you want to be an entrepreneur. Uh, I founded a business in my first year. I was kind of failing my degree anyway. I had 20 staff at that point, and yet I was still <laughs> holding on to this Linus blanket of, yeah, but I might get a degree at the end. And uh, I, I, sh- I shouldn't have made that decision. I should have dropped out. So I'm absolutely not saying that everyone, anyone that's listening to this who's at university should leave university. See uh, Peter Thiel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you're trying to launch a business or you intend to one day, then it might be a good idea. It's interesting when you try to teach <laughs> teach business without any context. It's you know it's it, it does it's like sometimes it's like trying to take a ten year old to an art museum when they don't want to go. It's like it's hard to appreciate things when you don't have a context or you're not interested yourself. And then mm. if you have the experience and you go back later, that's why MBA schools usually encourage once you have some business experience. Yeah, even well, that even that kind well, of like out teaching of context. Some, teaching someone to be a potter without ever letting them touch clay it's like you can't do that in a book right. you, just, you, you would be a horrible potter <laughs> on that same note what's the best advice you've ever received business or personal maybe from a business mentor that you worked with or something that sticks out in your mind like yeah it's what it's as i said earlier it was my wife's advice to me like stop trying to think like a vc stop making decisions based on the imaginary judgments of an invisible jury that that don't even exist uh follow your heart do the thing you're most passionate about and and like set set your own ambitions, set your own goals. That's really powerful. I mean, your the, the pact pact is really born out of you know that that pain that, you know that you had with crash pattern and all those observations. And so like that was a tough time for you. But without that, you probably wouldn't have this singular focus and mm. passion on doing this. So. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know if I would say it was born out of that. I think it's certainly. Uh, the decision to launch was was kind of crystallized in part by that experience, okay. but Pact is born out of um, fundamentally uh, my uh, passion for my my, my uh, profound emotional collect- connection with flavor and my belief that coffee is as good as flavor can possibly get. Like great coffee, it simply doesn't get better than that. Right. Um, and when we were drinking the coffee in the kitchen, you know, S- Stephen was like, you know, telling me the hints of it like a wine. And he was, <laughs> he was really in his own world. He yeah, was I'm like, wow. And I was that. tasting it. And this is from a guy that puts butter in his coffee. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, which Stephen, <laughs> Stephen wasn't too impressed with. But that's, that's, a, different, that's a different show. Um, the final part of that is to the 20-year-old that's listening to us out there that, that wants to be an entrepreneur or wants to get into tech, that could be a bad expression in itself. But what advice mm. do you give to them? as far as what they should do? Um, God, so many things. Uh, As I said before, do something that's passion-based and follow your heart. Ignore the invisible jewelry. They don't exist. Uh, And for the love of God, don't become a tech scene tourist that goes to a bunch of events and talks about how cool startups are because they're not. They're grueling and they're thankless and they don't pay you anything. Um, Just go and do the thing that you're so passionate about that none of that stuff matters. Otherwise, you're going to have a pretty horrible time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is this is real talk here. We had uh, Alethea Navarro from Skimless oh, yeah. on last night, and I'm sure you guys get along famously. And she said similar things. You know, she's like, you know, we're talking about the media bias and you know what people think a startup mm. is, a tech startup is, and then the reality, which is Stephen just described very well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it's a long, painful slog, and not what you see in the movies. No. Um, yeah. So so be well aware <laughs> of that, um, Stephen. If people want to get a hold of you, how should they do it? I'm guessing you're hiring. How do they find your car? Coffee, everything. What's the way? Wow. How do they? Okay. So the website is packcoffee.com. 
if they want to give us a try and they're in the UK, if they use the, the voucher code Silicon Real, then I'll, we're giving away a free Hario V60 with their first bag so they can yeah. make a cup of coffee exactly as you've That's just tried. It's a coffee maker and the coffee. So yeah, they, they cool. can find me personally on Twitter, uh, Stephen Rappaport. Okay. Um, they can email Pact, ahoy at packcoffee.com or email me, Stephen at packcoffee.com if they've got any questions. Like We love having conversations around I mean, coffee, the challenges of startups, anything really. Um, we're highly visible, so uh, if anyone wants to find us, I'm sure they'll find a way. Yeah, you know, what I've learned today is your passion and uh, your passion in your product and then your passion for really solving a customer issue. And so, like, that's what's really fascinating to me. You know, you could have just been like, and we'll send it out every two weeks, and now let's worry about the coffee. But you want to worry about every yeah. single piece of the experience. That's one thing I, I realized today. The other thing I realized is someone said one time about going to the gym. It's like you look to the guy to the left of you, and he's pumping this iron. And you look to the guy to the right of you, and he's doing this. It's like, focus on yourself. Yeah. Focus on your own business. Focus on your own challenges. Don't be looking west to California or this over here, you know, and you have all the resources. And mm. so that's what I like about you. You're not like, I want to be like this. I want to be like that. We have everything here we need. You have a customer base that's British. We're British. We're here. We have a mail system that works. So get on with it. Right. Exactly right. Okay. I love it. Stephen, thanks so much for being here. Hey, my pleasure. Thank um, you for this, having me. This is a, fantastic. a great format for you. I might have you back on London Reel to talk about coffee someday and just all things coffee. You I'd know? love to. We, I know Any, you would. Anytime. I know you would. <laughs> um, as we say on Silicon Reel, it's about the people. Uh, it's great talking to you and you're in your own uh, story you and passion. So thanks so much. And I wish all the best. I can't, re- I can't wait to, to see what you guys are doing in a year and two years. It's going to be no, fantastic. Me neither. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. Cool. Th- thanks so much. My pleasure. Right, Thank bye. you. This week on Silicon Reel, we have Alethea Navarro, CEO and co-founder of Skimlinks. It took me a year of pitching to, to raise my first seed round. Despite how difficult it is to raise money, it's easier than actually growing a company. You have to be driven by wanting to build a great company. Valuations don't matter, terms matter, and being here tomorrow matters. Hiring and training people is a hard thing, so you want to create an environment where people want to stay. To be part of the world that is creating our future, I think is, is one of the most creative things and important things to be doing right now. On Monday, Silicon Reel presents Alethea Navarro. Skim links. Take ego out of the equation and just focus on doing a good job.